This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Mike Lynch. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. This week, we speak with Harvard University Athletic Director Aaron McDermott. That is straight ahead on Bloomberg Business of Sports. But first, let's get to some of the topics of the week. And let's start with the NFL ratings on Amazon. Yes, they streamed a game. And uh, Lynchy, uh, I guess the ratings, they were, uh, let's say, respectable. They're pretty good. Four point, they average $4.8 million. Um, now, the games that are on the NFL network uh, average uh, just about 600000 more at about $5.6 million. This is kind of an interesting concept. Uh, they've streamed before, but the games have also been available over cable. This is the first time where you had to go to Amazon Prime if you wanted to watch the game. And my first reaction was, this is crazy. They're going to tick off a lot of NFL fans. And, of course, my 37-year-old daughter said, Dad, this is a great marketing ploy. Now all the people that don't have Amazon Prime are going to get it for this game, and they're going to see all the great things that are on Amazon Prime and watch the number of subscriptions just multiply after this game. So I'm going to go, you know, she's more hip than I am to these things, (laughs) and I'm going to go with with her and say maybe it was an ingenious uh, move by the NFL. Well, I'm with you, Lynchy. I didn't know this on our TV, and a lot of smart TVs have this. They have Amazon Prime. Right on there. Yeah. And and my wife said, you know, we have a subscription to Amazon Prime. I'm like, what? And then I clicked over, <laughs> and it's just like watching the game. It was, it, this is, like your daughter said, Lynchy, this is going to be the wave of the future. Yep, it is. And uh, who knows, Michael Barr, you'll be watching Downton Abbey maybe next week. You could be binge watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Spe- speaking of the NFL, you know, there's going to be something else that's going to happen. Let's like this game, for example, with the San Francisco 49ers. Maybe you'll see something as this play takes place. It's third year with the 49ers, a play fake. It's Juszczyk at the six. Juszczyk lunges. Did he get in? He did! Touchdown, San Francisco! What you might see on the helmets is an ad. And I'm just thinking... This is going to happen, Lynchy. I, I can see it. It's, it's, it's going to be like NASCAR. It's like you, you yep. can't have an empty car out there. You're going to sell the A front post. You're going to sell the, the hood. And I see this coming. By the way, the guy that went in and scored that touchdown, Kyle Juszczyk, number 44 for the 49ers, played for Harvard. And a little bit later, we're going to talk with Aaron McDermott, the athletic oh, director yeah. at Harvard. So it's a nice tie-in right there with that soundbite. Great job, guys. Woo-hoo. Yeah, um, you know, the NFL players already have a logo on their practice jerseys. Uh, nothing yet on their regular jerseys, but uh, you know, with high definition and so many tight shots of shoulder pads and helmets, uh, this won't be far away because uh, the NBA is already doing it, and I'm sure Michael Barr. I'm going to tee up right now to tell you. Do you have you tell us what other league is doing it? Uh, I'm going to say baseball. 
No, the NHL is going to do it. Oh, uh, that's right. Year. Yeah. Isn't baseball going to do it? Uh, baseball, I don't believe, has, has, has signed on yet. But three NHL teams, the New Jersey Devils, uh, have decal on their helmet, the Prudential Insurance. Uh, the Washington Capitals have Capital One. And the Nashville Predators have Bridgestone on the on their helmets, a little uh, logo. And uh, this generates about $15 million uh, just from these three teams alone. And you can expect other National Hockey League teams to be following suit fairly soon. Um, this was going to happen, from my understanding, um, anyway. But with all the loss of revenue from uh, the COVID the last season, the loss of games, etc., the National Hockey League decided to accelerate this thing. And it doesn't really bother me at all. I mean, a lot of the purists would say, well, why? But... You know the uh, the NBA players already have them on their on their jerseys, and the NFL players have them on their practice jerseys. And I don't think it's too long before you're going to see them on the NFL helmets or jerseys or Major League Baseball as well. Speaking again of the NFL, and this is unique. Uh, yeah, Russell Okung, the uh, the Pro Bowl tackle for the Carolina Panthers, he wanted to be paid in Bitcoin. He made this demand last year. Well, now it's coming to play. Now, he makes $13 million a year. 50% of that salary is going to Bitcoin using Zap's Strike product. And I just wonder if that's a good idea or not. I mean, why, why can't you just take your money once you get it and then say, okay, I'm going to take half the money now that I have my $13 million and put a certain percentage in Bitcoin? But this is the man's money. He can do whatever he wants, Lynchy. Yeah, he sees it as an investment, basically. In mid-December, uh, Bitcoin broke 20000 for the first time. And uh, the day after Christmas, it hit 26000 So, so far, right now, this investment in Bitcoin is paying off. But we all know how Bitcoin is. You know, what goes up must come down. And that's been happening with Bitcoin for a while. I just wonder, though, it, it, that's the point. It's so volatile. And I, I just, I don't know. It, it's a... I don't know if 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 it's you know it's not like buying bonds. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know it's you know yeah. old man bars like okay, you get that savings bond there, son, and you're going to be in twenty years. You're going to have it. No, we Bitcoin can take you all over the board, Lynchy. And I, I yeah, just it can. I, I'm just not a <laughs> believe it or not. I'm not a gambling person in this way. <laughs> For this, <laughs> this is the shocker of the year. But it took us to, to the next to last day of 2020 to find out that he's really not a gambler. No, I just I'm saying <laughs> in, in that field. it's like you know, okay, I can research a game, but with Bitcoin, it's like I don't know what's yeah. going to happen when I wake up the next day. It, it's it, well, uh, okay, call yeah. me chicken. Follow <laughs> the bouncing ball, basically, with Bitcoin. Follow the bouncing ball. Today we're speaking with Harvard University Athletic Director Aaron McDermott. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I have to start with uh, you are the AD at Harvard University. Uh, that is big news. Can you tell us about that and how this has impacted your life? Sure. It is big news. Uh, I have been in this industry um, for quite a while now and um, started it out as an athlete myself at Hofstra University playing basketball and, you know, sports and being an athlete were just hugely formative in who I am and how I became a leader. And so I wanted to pursue this profession and certainly Harvard um, would, would, uh, has always been a dream job for me, just one of those that if you ask me what are your top 10 
you know, jobs you'd like to have when um, I was a graduate student at UMass and, and going in this direction, Harvard would have been in that list for sure, both from the institution, um, being in the Ivy League, and that philosophy that I have, being a student athlete and in the educational model, um, and also because I'm from Massachusetts. And Harvard um, is, is certainly the place <laughs> when you're a student <laughs> in Massachusetts that you think is the pinnacle of education for, for sure, and not just if you live in Massachusetts, but globally. Um, so, you know, this is a, a huge get and um, something I'm very grateful for. And at the same time, I think, um, had the requisite experience to be in that chair. Hi, Aaron. It's Mike Lynch. Um, great to talk to you again. Erin um, and I uh, communicated when she first got the job on July 1st. Because of all the social distancing and the density on campus, how many days have you actually been in the office? Do you have to work from home most of the time? <laughs> I do. I do work from home most of the time. Campus has been very, um, you know, mindful about uh, the, the, as you said, the density on campus. So I have actually only physically been on campus twice um, in my six months at Harvard and once that I actually saw my office. I didn't sit (laughs) at the desk. I didn't work in the office. I was touring um, the building and getting a sense of where everything was. (laughs) So it's, uh, it's, it's very 2020. It's just been a very strange and different experience to start a job like this not be physically present with people, um, for the people that I work with every day, for it to be through a screen on Zoom for the most part um, is very different and very unnatural and very strange, which I guess is why I'm saying it's very 2020. Um, And, you know, it will continue through um, the spring semester, as you probably know, with, again, a very conservative approach to density on campus. So, um, without our normal operation kind of happening in a day-to-day way and without so far competition happening, and um, so coaches not having as much presence on campus as well, and students for sure, um, you know, just we're all pretty much um, working at home except for really essential operations that need to continue for the maintenance of the buildings. I'm not making fun of COVID, but there is a, a joke running around on the Internet as the new year comes in and people are saying, uh, I'm going to be up at midnight not to see 2021 come in, but to make sure 2020 leaves. And that's, <laughs> that brings up the point about, and, and you, you touched off onto it, how COVID has impacted your job. Can you take us through more of the steps that you have had to go through and some of the hurdles uh, taking place with your job? Yeah, sure. I mean, it even starts with the hiring process itself. You know, my my first interview with Harvard was actually here in Boston in person. But after that, it was literally the timing of everything shutting down. It was mid-March. And so um, everything went virtual. All of my subsequent interviews were through Zoom. Um, and that was a very different and unsettling experience, honestly. I mean, it wasn't something that we were accustomed to at that point. It was concerning to um, try to have interviews of that significance um, for the job that I absolutely, you know, in, in my whole of being wanted. 
and not knowing that it would be really the best way to convey who I am and what I could bring and, and what we could do at Harvard together. So just right from the beginning, it had a significant impact. And then, you know, the first time I met um, members of the department, I was still living in Chicago, hadn't moved yet here, and met everyone through Zoom um, and had to give, again, this first impression of of who I am and what I'm about and what I would hope and want for student athletes at Harvard and, you know, what I hoped um, a working relationship would be like with people in the department um, was all on that screen. And it has been like that ever since, you know, conversations with the coaches, conversations with student athletes, conversations with alumni, um, my colleagues across campus. So it's, something that we've all had to adapt to. And that's one thing I've uh, always felt I've been able to do in a very uh, productive way throughout my career is adapt to different things and different situations. This is one that we've, it's all, it's been a very strong test for all of us. And, you know, I think um, if, if, if it feels like we're all kind of moving in the same direction, um, that people are uh, supportive of the direction that we're going. And I feel like if that can happen in this forum, then we'll be clicking, you know, on all cylinders when we can actually come together physically. So as strange as it's been and as challenging as it's been, as different as it's been, um, I actually think it's we've been able to move forward in positive ways and develop rapport and relationships in a way that will set us in motion in a great way when we can come together. And that's really been my focus is what can we do right now to put ourselves in the best position we can be for when that time happens. Aaron, you're uniquely qualified for this job. I mean, you've worked every single part of an athletic department, first at Princeton, then Columbia, and then the athletic director at the University of Chicago. Combine all those three experiences into uh, how it's made you uh, just so ready for this job. Yeah, you know, and that's exactly how I felt. It was just, it's almost a storybook um, trajectory. And it felt like this was very much the perfect natural progression at the same time. Um, such a challenging position to get because, of course, it's highly sought after. Um, many people would want to be the athletic director at Harvard. So I had strong competition. I know that. Um, and it was, though, as you're saying, you know, just I couldn't have scripted it better to have started my career at Columbia, an Ivy League school in New York City at a point in my life and career that I was learning so much. I had to kind of figure it out on my own and in a place that you really have to sink or swim. I mean, you have to um, be able to thrive in New York as a young person, not making a lot of money um, and figure it out and be resourceful. And it was from that step, being able to move to Princeton, which, um, you know, one of the more competitive, obviously, Ivy League schools learned, you know, how to kind of make that combination really work well within the Ivy philosophy of having successful teams and still being true to the educational mission and, um, you know, primary focus for student-athletes in that way that I would hope that we can accomplish at Harvard, and Harvard already has in many ways. But 
almost just like when I went to the University of Chicago, a place that Division three school, but in a very different kind of Division three conference, teams were doing pretty well, but I felt could be better and could be more dominant within that conference that the that University of Chicago is in, and were able to make strides in doing that while I was there. So I'm bringing the Ivy philosophy that I learned and became such a fan of being at Columbia and Princeton, and now, you know, maybe this attention to how do we get better? How do we actually take something that's really good and make it better and requisite with the excellence of the institution of Harvard like we did at the University of Chicago? Aaron, you mentioned about Zoom, and and I'm one of those old geezers. I remember someone said, do you know what Zoom is? And I said, yeah, it used to be a show on PBS for kids. I watched that show. Yeah, I was there. It was I saw the debut. That's I'm I'm sad, but it's but the Zoom that, shirts they were the best. Those striped shirts. Oh my goodness, yes, and everybody was barefoot all on the set. It was good. What, what what one day we will be out of a, a Zoom society, depending on depending on it, and we are going to be past COVID nineteen. And we're going to be going full bore in sports from football uh, on to baseball. And and I can go on and on and on about sports. What will it take for us as a nation to get back to that point where the stands were crowded and we were watching sports the way we used to? Yeah. Well, you know, you kind of said it as the obvious. We need we need COVID-19 to basically disappear. You know, we need vaccinations to be out there in a in a big way. We need to reach this herd immunity we keep talking about of, you know, the percentage might fluctuate depending on um the given day, but to know that we're at a point in our population that um we're not as we're not as dangerous to each other. We're not as in um, jeopardy of our own health to be in a crowd. And so, you know, I hope in my heart of hearts that that is sooner rather than later and that, you know, come fall, certainly, as you said, with a football season, with um, soccer seasons, with those, you know, what we get through a summer where hopefully we're in a much better place that that can happen. But I think, you know, I'm sure there'll be some trepidation from people even um, going back into that kind of situation. I'm sure for some people, there'll be just, you know, such a hunger to be in that situation that there'll be um, a great demand. And at the same time, I'm sure there'll be some hesitation by others to be back in that kind of situation. So I think you know, it could be a gradual transition where there's um, certain numbers of people allowed in, spaced out in different ways, depending on, you know, our situation come the fall. But, um, you know, I think that's what's going to need to happen is we're just going to have to be in a much different place with this virus. We'll need to be in a much different place with its um, effectiveness on, you know, the population of contracting the virus, that more people are protected against it. And, um, you know, that we can assure people that they're safe in our venues. I think that's that's really important. So that's why we need to have not just a kind of normal approach to crowd control and seating and um, sales, but really, you know, have some good guidance, some sound guidance of what's safe for people in different situations and at what point can we 
um, introduce a certain level of fans to maybe a full, you know, full uh, number of fans in in the arenas and in in the stadiums. Aaron, we, uh, I mean, we, you have <laughs> 42 inter, uh, intercollegiate uh, varsity teams in varsity sports. Many schools, most notably Stanford, has cut a lot of varsity programs. Um, how have you been able to keep all 42? Will you be able to keep all 42 if this pandemic keeps going on? Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right, and it is we, Mike. You're one of us. So it's, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, always, always crimson. So we'll, we'll take that. Um, you know, I hope so. I mean, you know, I think our model is one that because we're not revenue based, we are educationally based. That you know, we're not. Uh, we don't have athletic scholarships. Um, that because of that model, we actually can sustain hopefully, you know, more at that level. Um, you know, it wasn't just Stanford and, and other scholarship schools that have dropped, as you know, a couple of Ivy schools have. And so it doesn't completely protect that from happening. But, you know, I hope that we can continue um, kind of sponsoring the sports that we do at the level that we do, because I think we so believe in these opportunities for students and um, for student athletes to be able to, you know, compete in these different sports at the college level, at the varsity level. Um, so we've, we've not been in a position to need to um, evaluate that or change, you know, what we're doing. Um, you never know. Things can, can change, and especially, as you said, with this COVID environment and the financial impact that that has had and even just how we think about activities. Um, but I, you know, I, we're, we're not at that point. I hope to not reach that point. And um, I think just trying to stay within this model of why we do what we do and what those opportunities mean and um, what they should, you know, kind of fulfill for Harvard and that holistic educational environment of being a student athlete and having as many opportunities as we can for people to do that. You know, um, I think it's a it's a model that became one at Harvard for a reason, and I hope that we can sustain that. And I guess the, the biggest thing that pops out of my mind when you are the AD of any major college is that uh, you, there's talk about sponsorship. And I'm just wondering, uh, is there any talk about it uh, from a local level for the upcoming season or from a national level with Nike or, or whatever? Sure, we, we certainly are in that as well, even though, you know, not as major uh, part of our program as maybe, you know, some higher level uh, Power 5 type Division One schools. But we do have an agreement with Nike. Nike is our official provider for all apparel and, and footwear. Um, we also have a, an a, arrangement with um, JMI Sports that's our um, – as you will, kind of corporate sponsor um, company that we work with. We had just started that agreement really just before COVID. So it's been a tough time for them to try to come in and, and help us out in that way. But it's a relationship that we um, certainly value. They also have a relationship with the Ivy League. And so um, we, we look to continue that. So we'll be looking at both um, local opportunities as well as national opportunities. Um, we have to be, you know, certainly, again, very mindful of this is the Harvard 
reputation. This is the Harvard brand. So um, you won't see as much kind of billboard action uh, for Harvard athletics as maybe you see with others that, you know, we carry a stronger identity in many ways beyond um, athletics for sure. And institutionally, um, we'll be very conservative with what we do. So we have it. And we will continue that. It's more at a fledgling um, position than you see at many other places, but it will probably continue to be a little more subtle than what you see at other places just because of who we are. Aaron, once upon a time, the athletic director's job was a nice landing spot for a longtime coach. It sort of was a a launching pad into retirement. Uh, But somewhere before the turn of the century, that role of the athletic director changed uh, dramatically. Uh, You had to become a fundraiser. You had to become a network coordinator. You had to be done with compliance. Uh, Do you have different arms of uh, in your department that are in charge of fundraising? or Is that sort of an accurate assessment of what the job entails now, in in addition to overseeing 42 sports? Yeah, it is an accurate assessment of what the job (laughs) is. You're you're exactly right that it um, change from very much an internally focused position that basically, you know, managed coaches and day-to-day operations, which were much more, um, you know, rudimentary, I guess, as far as, you know, what that would entail for an athletic department. And it has really morphed into all of that, along with an external focus of the fundraising and these kind of sponsorship issues that come into play, um, how you're representing yourself publicly. That's why even athletic communications, that whole area has become so much more media-driven and social media-driven. And so that identity that you project um, publicly becomes much more part of the job as far as what you need to be thinking about and how to coordinate that with the larger, you know, university interests. So um, it's definitely become a much different job. It is certainly more being a CEO, a leader, you know, of, um, and I don't, I don't say that to, to liken it to business necessarily, because again, we are very much in the educational you know, industry um, and profession, but it is all those different kind of constituents that you're touching on and need to lead in a way. Um, And so, yes, within the department, we have, you know, people that oversee all those different areas that you mentioned. As far as fundraising, that's one area that we've actually really relied on the university to help us in Um, So with the University Development Office, working with them on our fundraising needs. But very recently, we were able to, it's one of the things I wanted to to kind of adapt for us uh, in, in early on in my time was really having some people who are truly focused on athletic fundraising because it has become such a major part of um, having the resources we need to provide the kind of student athlete experience that we want to and and feel is, is requisite with um, an experience at Harvard and within the Ivy league. So we actually will be hiring um, a person soon to oversee athletic fundraising with me being very much a part of that as well. But, you know, it can't all be, on me, and we do need people who are really solely focused on um, athletics fundraising because of just the continuation and and growth of needs that we really have um, to provide the kind of experience that we should be. You bring a special set of credentials to the job. Not only are you 
extremely qualified, but you played sports, so you know what it goes into about when you're trying to do sports. This isn't like me walking into IBM and saying, let's talk about computer components, because I don't know a blasted thing about computer components. You know this backwards and forwards. How has your sport background crossed over to being the AD at Harvard? It's it's huge. I mean, I can't downplay that at all and can't almost talk about it enough. You know, I think my my athletic experience, especially going back to even, you know, I'll date myself too. And you mentioned Zoom. I mean, <laughs> you know, we played sports when it was very normal to play at least three sports in high school and all kinds of different youth sports. And so my experience as a high school athlete playing field hockey, playing basketball, track and field, I played softball before that. Um, those touch points with all those different sports and having an understanding of being on a team sport versus individual sport, um, the kind of motivation and the kind of discipline and the kind of work ethic that goes into that. And just being a competitive person, you know, I think that's really important in what we do and understanding what drives coaches and understanding what student athletes hope and dream about. Um, and also having been a strong student myself and knowing that, um, you, that it's an and equation. You want to be the best you can be as a student and as an athlete, which is why a place like Harvard and the Ivy League fits me so well. So it's, it was completely drawing from that experience of being a student athlete. And I actually think, you know, to Mike's point earlier, a question earlier about it used to be that athletic directors was kind of a, a, a position that a coach would take on maybe as their last uh, job before retiring. And so that was very common for athletic directors to have a coaching background. And it's not necessarily any longer. There are still some athletic directors for sure who are coaches. But I think not having been a coach in some ways um, has allowed me to have very much a pure student-athlete lens that I look at everything that we do, I look at all the decisions that we make, I look at you know what we need to focus on in the future through that student-athlete lens because that's my reference point. And I've now worked with coaches and both as an athlete and as an administrator to the point that, you know, I really also understand coaches and um, what, you know, they're looking for and, and, and want to have. But I think we all have to keep the student athlete piece of this center. And that's why I always describe myself as a student athlete centric leader. And that's because of my experience as a, as an athlete. And I can't, um, you know, as I, as I said, I can't kind of give it enough credit for being prepared and, and driving me to be the best I can be um, for them. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since the kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. We're not very good at this, Aaron. So, uh, <laughs> he, he embarrasses us all the time. And I want to give you give, give you one quick story, Michael Barr. Um, Aaron Aaron grew up not far from Boston, maybe forty five minutes outside of town. She played for Oakmont Regional, and she was credited one night in the state tournament for holding Rebecca Lobo to thirty points <laughs> in one game. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember that, Aaron? Oh, I do. It was the state semifinals. We beat their team, and 
they were they were clearly favored to win. Unfortunately, we went on to lot lose the uh, state championships at Milton High School, but who had a point guard who ended up playing for Boston College. Um, but anyway, yes, I do recall. See, see, in case you didn't know, I'm just a degenerate gambler. I wish I would have been on that game. I'd have made a lot of money on that one. (laughs) Now I got to give you this number of the week. This is this is going to be good. Poor Jason Kelly. Uh, I'm I'm glad he's off because I I usually just mess with his head, (laughs) and he and he he hates the number of the week. So I'm going to give the number of the week. It is sixty. The number is 60, and uh, I'll let uh, Aaron take a crack at it first. What is the significance of the number 60 that I'm driving for? The number 60, the age of your favorite... <laughs> uh, Lynchy. <laughs> I'm going to say since I just got three emails from uh, from Harvard University saying thank you for your support, I'm going to say it's forty dollars less than I gave to the football program, the baseball program, and the general scholarship fund. How's that? Now everyone knows what I gave. Oh <laughs> uh, well, that's even better. But <laughs> sixty, the number I'm looking for. It is the number of times Harvard has defeated Yale in football. And now we got a special treat. 66,000 fans at the Yale Bowl, and they're all here. The whole season's right here on the foot of Mike Lynch. Right-footed kicker. Snap from center, good. Ball down, kick up. It is good. It's good. Mike Lynch hits a 26-yard field goal. Mike Lynch. Harvard takes a 10-7 lead, and maybe the Ivy League title is going to ride back to Cambridge this afternoon. Oh, baby. Ah, we dusted <laughs> off that one for you, Lynchy. <laughs> you sure did. I didn't know they had recorders back then in the uh, turn of the century. <laughs> we had to chisel that one out, man. That's what happened with that. Oh, that is really neat. Oh, Aaron McDermott, thank you so much. You've been so kind, and uh, thank you for playing along with this. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It was really nice to talk to you both and uh i know i'll i'll have future conversations with lynchy anyway (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah many of them (laughs) you've been listening to bloomberg business of sports we are here each and every week at the same time plus online wherever you get your podcasts you can catch those mondays wednesdays and thursdays i'm michael barr on twitter at big bar sports and it was a pleasure to talk to the pride of Oakmont Regional High School, Aaron McDermott. <laughs> I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCVB. Oh, I could have made a lot of money. Uh, you're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports <laughs> and Bloomberg Radio around the world.